encourage you to grab your Bibles and make your way to Mark chapter 1, where we're going to pick up today and going into chapter 2. And while you're finding it, here's the question. How many of you have ever felt like an outsider? Ever felt like an outcast? Maybe it was on the playground during recess in elementary school. Teams were being formed. Captains were selected. And you stood and waited. Maybe one of those captains would call your name. Or maybe you'd be overlooked. Maybe it was the middle school years, the awkward middle school years. You guys remember those, junior high? Maybe um, your body was changing differently or you had to wear some headgear because your teeth weren't straight. Or maybe you didn't wear the cool kid clothes. didn't make friends with the insiders. And so you walked the halls of your middle school, junior high as an outsider. Maybe it was even into your adult years. Maybe uh, at work, you don't quite fit in with your fellow employees, and you always feel like you're just on the outside of conversations. And when you walk in, they stop talking. Maybe it's in your own family. You've been shunned because of things that have happened or misunderstood, and you're an outsider looking in. I think the truth be told, all of us have felt those moments when we were overlooked and we were missed. And can I tell you, Jesus came for those people, too. You know, in the culture in which Jesus ministered, there were kind of central cultural hubs that were, you know, considered like the synagogues. That's where the important people were. That's where the religious were, and, and that's, that's where Jesus ministered, right? He did. He's, he preached in the synagogues. He preached in temple courts. He preached in the center of cultural places. But you know what, he, what else he did? He wasn't afraid to go out on the fringe of culture to the outcasts, to the outsiders. And what we see in Mark 1 and into Mark chapter 2 is Jesus intentionally pushing that social boundary to reach those who felt like they were on the outside looking in, to reach those that everybody else tended to overlook, but Jesus didn't. And it was that kind of radical ministry, it was that kind of radical love that Jesus had that really caused people to love him and people to hate him. In fact, it was often his radical forgiveness that we're going to talk about today. It was often his radical forgiveness that caused people to either love it or to hate him. I'm going to talk today about the radical forgiveness of Jesus. And I hope that in some way you've experienced that forgiveness in your life as we see it today in the gospel of Mark. And here's what I want us to see. This is kind of the the overall big idea for today. It's that Jesus offers radical forgiveness in impossible situations to improbable people. This is the big point today, because we're going to look at Mark 1 and into Mark 2, how he consistently offers radical forgiveness or, or radical ministry to what we would call impossible situations where it's like there is no hope, there is no help. And that's where he stepped in with radical love and radical forgiveness. And not only that, but to people who felt like they were the highly improbable recipients of that kind of forgiveness. You might remember the the yearbooks you had in middle school and high school and how you had the most likely to succeed, right? The most popular. What if there was a category called the most unlikely to be saved, right? You probably could think of people like that. 
Maybe, maybe people in your family or in your circle of friends are like, <laughs> you don't know that person, Kelly. They are like the most unlikely person to be saved. But you know what? I don't think so. Because Jesus came to offer radical forgiveness into impossible situations where it seemed helpless and hopeless to improbable people who seemed like I would put them at the lowest probability of ever experiencing his forgiveness and his grace. But yet that's why he came. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we always have Bibles available to you on on little uh, stands by the doors of the sanctuary. Take a Bible. We want you to have God's Word. You don't have a printed Bible, please take one. It's our gift to you. A lot of you also use the Bible app, and so we encourage you to use that YouVersion Bible app, the most downloaded Bible app, I think, in the world, uh, because we embed our notes in there. If you go to Menu, more events, you'll find Neighborhood Church listed as one of the locations of a live event where our notes are embedded there for you. But in Mark 1, to give us the setup for this, again, remember, Jesus had just preached in Mark 1, prior to this passage, he had just preached in a synagogue in Capernaum, which kind of became his little uh, center of ministry, kind of where he launched out of. It was the hometown of Peter and, and, uh, and his brother Andrew. This is where they lived. And this is where he started his ministry. So he taught in that synagogue, and he set free a man who was possessed by a demon. And then that night, as he went back to the house, right, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then we had people coming all night long to see Jesus and have him heal them and set them free from demons. And early in the morning, Jesus gets up to go have time with his father in prayer. And in the morning, Peter goes to look for Jesus in the house, and he's not there. Crowds are gathering again to see this miracle worker. So Peter and the disciples, at that time, it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John, just four of them. They go to find Jesus, and he's praying. And they're like, hey, what are you doing out of here? There's crowds gathering. And Jesus says, I want to go preach the gospel elsewhere. He didn't want people to miss the point. Yes, he's a miracle worker, but he came to be the one who preached good news. Because the culture in which he ministered needed good news. Because at that point in time, the bad news was the law can't save you. In fact, the only thing the law can do is show how much of a sinner you are. And because of that, there are rituals you do to honor God until the one would come, the Messiah that the prophet Isaiah spoke about, who would be a light in darkness, who would bring hope to the hopeless. And so he preached the good news. He said, we got to go elsewhere and preach the good news. So it's on his way to another village that this part happens. So he's outside the cities, in between two cities, and this happens. A man with leprosy came to him, Mark 1.40, and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Leprosy was a terrible disease. It still exists although not very commonly in our world today, it still does exist. It's a skin-eating disease. It works its way from the outside in. And in the process of leprosy, what happens is your skin literally dies on your body and you begin to decay. And that decay and that death works its way to nerve endings and pretty soon you can't feel the pain, which by the way is a little bit of a blessing in disguise because you can't feel your body dying around yourself. But the bad side of leprosy is also because you can't feel and you've lost the ability to feel pain, that limb now can be injured or burnt or nibbled by rats and you would never know it and further infection would set in and you would die a slow death. It was a terrible thing to happen. And in the Old Testament, they had rules about what would happen if you were discovered to have leprosy. One of those was the priest would examine you to verify, yes, indeed, you have leprosy. And if you did, you would have to leave your family. 
leave the community, live on the outskirts of town. And anytime you came near to people, you'd have to cry out, unclean, unclean. Let them know that they cannot touch you or come near you. You had to stay 50 paces away from people. And if you got too close, every good Jew would grab a stone and throw it at you to keep you at distance. Leprosy was a terrible thing. This man has lost his family, his income, his home. He now lives perhaps alone. Oftentimes what would happen is lepers would, because they can't be with anybody else, they could at least find community with each other. So oftentimes they would be groups of lepers who would live together on the outskirts of town. He couldn't come to Capernaum and see Jesus, the miracle worker who he'd heard about, because he couldn't be near people. And would it be possible that Jesus would leave this place of importance and go out to the outside of culture and minister to me? But that day, that's exactly what happened. Jesus is walking his direction, and he runs to him and falls on his knees and says some incredible words. He says, if you are willing, not if you're able. He knows who this is. He's heard stories. But he's like, I'm a leper. I don't think I deserve this. I've lost everything. But if you're willing... You can make me clean. And it says that Jesus was indignant. Why was he indignant? Because the leper came to him? Because this man would dare approach Jesus? No. The actual word for that is he was mad, but he wasn't mad at the man. He was mad at how sin ravages his humankind. Remember, he was with the Father when he spoke creation over all the world. When Adam was formed, Jesus was there at the right hand of his Father. And when he saw them choose to disobey God, he saw the effects of sin. And this man bears the marks, an illness, a disease of the effects of sin. And he's mad at sin. And by the way, leprosy is very symbolic of sin. Isn't it true? Because sin has a way of totally eroding your life, killing you from the outside in. Some of you know what that feels like when you let your sin control your life. It's taken you away from family. You've lost things. Lepers would lose fingers, toes, noses, ears. As they would go through this decaying process, they would lose parts of their body, and they would wait until they as they would basically be the walking dead. They were like zombies waiting to die. It would lose so much. Isn't that true for sin? The things that we lose because of sin, the hopelessness and the helplessness that sets in, but yet he comes to Jesus. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Now look at this. After he was indignant and angry at sin, what does he do? It says that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. When was the last time this man was touched? We don't know. If he lived alone and he was advanced in leprosy, it's been a long time since he felt the human touch on his body. Did Jesus have to touch him? No. We see accounts in Scripture where Jesus just speaks a word and somebody in the village next door gets healed. He could have spoken to this leper when he was still 50 paces off. Don't come close, but you're healed. He could have done that. But what did he do? Touched him. Why? Because God continues to show his compassion through the touch of Jesus, touching this man, bringing a closeness to him, and then saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately, verse 42, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Think about what that might have looked like with me. I I tend to be a bit creative in my own imagination. But imagine this man, he came to Jesus and he's bandaged. Maybe he's missing fingers. 
missing noses. He has certainly no teeth because his gums have given up his teeth a long time ago. But imagine all of a sudden Jesus said those words, be clean. And that man began to see something happen to his body. Not just ugly spots healed, not just scabs that fell off and healed. Could you imagine fingers reappearing on his hands and a nose back on his face and ears? Friends, this is what happens when a creator God who speaks the words of authority over creation touches your life. He restores things to you. You might think that sin has robbed you of stuff, but guess what? Jesus is in the, is in the, the business of restoring and bringing back. This man was healed dramatically. And then he tells this man something really crazy. I mean, if you think about it, this is like the best miracle so far. I mean, a leper, right? You, get, you don't get any better than this. Well, maybe raising the dead, but that's going to come later. But look what happens. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Now, here's the deal. In the Old Testament, if, if you happen to be healed of leprosy, which never happened, but because they didn't quite have a good medical system back then, any kind of skin disease could potentially be leprosy that would send you out. Some of those skin diseases were just a skin irritation or an issue that would be dealt with, and you would come back and show yourself to the priest. But a leper was never healed. Old Testament, one account. His name was Naaman. And he was told by the prophet to go dip in the Jordan River, and he would be, he'd be healed, and he was. Okay? Here, now, in the New Testament, we haven't seen this happen before. So imagine the priest's surprise when this man shows back up. They know him because they're the ones that banished him. And he comes back and says, hey, look at your records. I had leprosy. Look, I'm here, completely healed as a testimony to them of the healing power of Jesus. But he tells this man not to tell anybody except to go show himself to the priest. Isn't it interesting in Scripture? It's just, this baffles me. The people Jesus says don't tell, they go and tell. And it's not like reverse psychology. He's not like thinking, okay, if I say don't tell, they'll tell. So you know, that's not what he's thinking. He actually knows that if word gets out about him, people will come to him for the wrong reasons. While he certainly was a miracle worker, he came to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Don't confuse why he came. And if all he became was a sideshow doing miracles, people would miss the point. So he's trying to protect himself in ministry so he can continue to preach the gospel with signs and wonders. So he tells the man, don't tell anybody. But what does the guy do? He can't help it. He leaves there and he begins to tell everybody. Look at what it says. Instead, verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, here's the deal. The man who is told not to tell, tells. But yet we, as followers of Jesus, have been clearly told to go tell. Matthew 20, 18, go make disciples. And guess what? Most of us don't. Isn't it interesting? The ones he commissions disobey him as much as the one he said don't tell <laughs> disobeyed him. Lord, help us to be willing messengers of his good news because he's actually telling us to do it. Well, the story goes on in Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. A few days later, 
When Jesus again entered Capernaum, so he's going back to where he was starting his base out of, the people heard that he had come home and they gathered such large numbers, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. That's why he came, was to preach. And so he's in this house, probably Peter's house, because Jesus himself did not have a place to lay his head. He did not own property. That's not why he came. He came to be a preacher of the gospel, and so he preached the word, and some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So here we have a man. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed, perhaps since he was born, or maybe an illness or an injury happened that paralyzed him. Um, Some say he had epilepsy. We don't know exactly what his issue was, but here's this man who can no longer move his limbs, carried by friends, and they can't even get him to Jesus because there's people in the way. I've had to ask myself the question, in what ways have I got in the way of people really seeing Jesus? You ever thought about that? How have I got in the way of people seeing Jesus? Maybe I've been judgmental to others, and I got in the way of people seeing Jesus. Maybe I've been hypocritical, the other side. Maybe I come to church on Sunday but live like the devil the rest of the week, and folks are like, whatever, I don't need Jesus if that's all he does. It's just a crutch. I don't need a crutch. What ways have I got in the way? You know, there are also the religious leaders who were there in that house blocking the way for this man to come in. And in their religious pride, they wouldn't let those who need Jesus most to come in. Interesting to think about, right? How many times have I been an obstacle rather than an opportunity to introduce somebody to Jesus? But the story goes on. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd... May this crowd, by the way, never be an obstacle to people in Albany coming to know Jesus. Never. So what happened? They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. These guys were not going to give up, right? All right, so we can't get in the front door. There is another way in. We're going to get to Jesus regardless. They were not going to give up in their faith or in their hope to see their friend healed. We carried him all the way here. He's going to get healed. So what do they do? They go up on the roof of the house. Sometimes there's a ladder. Sometimes there's a stairwell because the tops of homes in, in this culture were often used as kind of the deck of the house. They would go up on top of the house because they didn't own a lot of real estate. They'd go above the home, and that would be their patio where they would hang out in the cool of the breeze, and they would enjoy dinner up there at times. And so the roofs were made of significant beams that would cross the walls, and then they would have smaller sticks oftentimes that would bridge the beams. They would pack it with mud and thatch, and they would create these wooden, um, wood, wood and mud and roofs that after it would rain really hard, they have to go back up and repatch. So these guys just tear through a pretty easy obstacle to get this man to Jesus. Now, could you imagine being Jesus down in the house teaching and mud and sticks start falling and landing in his beard and in his hair and he's preaching all of a sudden the roof opens up. But the audacity of these guys to interrupt Jesus with this friend of theirs who needs to be healed, right? Jesus could have been pretty torqued about all of this. But I think there was a part of him that laughed. I was like, oh my goodness. And it goes on to say this, look what happens. Verse five, after their friend was lowered, when Jesus saw their faith, he's like, okay, wow, this is like textbook Bible faith. I cannot believe what these guys are doing. This is incredible. And so he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And the guys up on the roof go, Jesus, we didn't bring him to you to forgive him. 
Uh, you notice that we had to lower him on a mat because he can't walk. His hands and his arms don't work. I think you misdiagnosed the issue here. He doesn't need forgiveness. He needs to walk again. But how many know that Jesus knows the highest priority need that we have? Sometimes we want comfort, we want ability, because it feels good and it works for us. Jesus wants your soul. He wants you saved. And he knew that sin was the corruption that broke mankind. As it did the leper, it has also affected this man because sin brings with it disease and brokenness. And so he says to the man, you're forgiven. What happens? Verse 6, teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You'd think they should have heard their own words. Oh, Maybe this is the Son of God. But they couldn't see Jesus through all of their own judgment. And so immediately, he knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. But he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, aren't you glad that there's like nobody else in the world who can penetrate your heart like that? That'd be pretty freaky, wouldn't it? He knows what they're thinking. And he says, verse 9, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, which I could say, and you would never know right now if he was forgiven or not. You would never know. Because forgiveness is an inward work. You wouldn't see it. He could still be paralyzed and forgiven, right? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, now he, just, now he deals with the secondary issue, right? I tell you, take up your mat and go home. So he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, what does this show us? It's this simple thing, that Jesus' radical forgiveness offends, only offends those who haven't truly experienced it themselves. His radical forgiveness only offends those who haven't truly experienced it themselves. Here's the truth. Some of you, truth be told, you've been offended at how God has forgiven somebody. They don't deserve that kind of love or grace. They did some terrible things. We look at some terrorists around the world and think that person can never be saved. Look what terrible things they have done. And we get offended when we hear these stories of people who were like the devil, who get saved and set free from their sin and truly repent and start following God. And we're like, yeah, right, the proof's in the pudding. And we get offended. But we have no problem when the forgiveness is right here, right? Thank you, God. I love your forgiveness. Friends, if you're offended at how God forgives other people, you better start checking your own forgiveness status today. Because the only ones who get offended are those who really haven't experienced that themselves. And as we forgive, have been forgiven, we, like him, forgive. Mark 2.13 goes on. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. This would be the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret as it was called right where Capernaum sits, and a large crowd came to him, of course, right? He can't get away from the crowds, and he began to teach them. 
And as he walked along, he saw Levi, who was also called Matthew, all right? Here he's called Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now, here's the thing. We look at that cute little story, Jesus calling another disciple. How wonderful. But I got to give you a little backstory on this, okay? Right to this point, Jesus has Peter, James, or Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He has four disciples. All of those are fishermen who fish at this lake, okay? Matthew, or Levi, as Mark calls him, is a tax collector. You know what his job is? To collect tax for Rome. He was a Jew. The day that Matthew became a tax collector was the day that his family excommunicated him. It was the day he could no longer go to synagogue and worship God because he was walking away from his heritage and his faith and his people, his nationality, once he was employed by Rome. Because as a tax collector, your passion was money. And the more you could make, the better. So he would get the appropriate taxes for Rome, yes, but he would also cheat people. He could charge an interest for himself, for his business. Now picture with me, Peter, Andrew, James, John, fishermen who fished in this port. Levi's booth was probably very near the hub of the fishing industry. And guess who Peter, Andrew, James, and John paid taxes to? This guy. Guess who probably cheated Peter, Andrew, James, and John out of funds? This guy. And Jesus stops at his booth. This guy is no longer considered a Jew. The rabbis besides Jesus walk by his booth and they curse at him. He's an outsider looking in. And yet Jesus stops and he sees something and he says, follow me. And what happens? He gets up immediately and follows Jesus. This is the guy. Matthew, the one who wrote the first gospel to, by the way, a Jewish audience. The gospel of Matthew written by this tax collector who has his own bracket of badness as we move into the next part of this story. There are sinners and tax collectors. They're so bad, they can't even be lumped in with sinners. That's how bad tax collectors are. And yet he's the one. Jesus says, follow me. What did Jesus see in him? I'll tell you. This is the truth. That Jesus invites unlikely people to follow him into unlimited potential. He calls unlikely people. Maybe you feel like one of those unlikely people. He calls unlikely people to follow him into unlimited potential. Matthew could have stayed as a tax collector the rest of his days, but he didn't. And because he followed Jesus, he becomes a gospel writer who writes the gospel of Matthew, who becomes one of the inner 12, becomes one of the ones who continue to preach Jesus after his death and resurrection in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. This Matthew, Jesus saw unlimited potential in, and so he called him. Friends, listen, when he calls you, don't limit yourself because what he sees in you is something you don't see yet, but he sees unlimited potential in those that he calls. But Matthew's story doesn't end there. Look at how it continues, and we wrap it up with this. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's, or Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners. Notice that? Did you see how that just happened? 
They are so bad, they have their own category of badness. Tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Many who? Many tax collectors and sinners followed Jesus. Friends, listen, sinners liked Jesus. What can we do to continue to make that true today? They like Jesus. They just choke on what it's looked like in the church. Lord, help us. Sinners had no problem following Jesus. Hearing his story is a good news. Why? Because it most impacted their life. So verse 16, when the teachers, there they were again, they were always a little crowd by Jesus, kind of like the little law police. They want to catch him doing wrong. When they saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, see, that's not what you do. If you eat with somebody, you are building community with them. It's as though saying we are together. We are the same. We're in communion. If two enemies would eat a meal together, it was a sign of peace. And so in the, in the Lord's, uh, in the, sorry, in the, in the Psalm 23 about the, the good shepherd, right, when he talks about that, how he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, that whole point is when you eat with somebody, you're saying we are now good. And here's Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners who are considered not good people, but he's saying we're good. I'm building relationship with you. And, on, uh, and so they asked his disciples, not Jesus, but his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who to doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We can never miss this point of Christ's mission. Never miss this. Because people who were religiously proud totally missed Jesus. They didn't think they needed him. They had become so blind to their own failures and their own brokenness that they think that the law was going to fix for them because they were so law-focused, they totally missed the God who came to bring relationship with them. And he, Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy you need a doctor. He wasn't commending them, by the way, for the, for the religious pride. He was just saying, you guys don't see your own need but I've come for the people who see their own need of a Savior, their brokenness, those that really identify as being sick. I've come for them. What's the point? Jesus puts good news within reach of those broken by sin to offer them spiritual healing. Isn't that the cool thing about Jesus? His good news was right there in the house of Levi with his fellow sinners and tax collectors, and he puts the good news right there, right where they are, to those that were spiritually sin sick, who needed a doctor to minister to the brokenness of their souls. And Jesus was never afraid to do that. That was radical, friends. That was radical, that he would spend time with tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he knew who his target audience was. I am here for the broken and the sin sick world. If you see your need, you can come to me and find spiritual healing. And that's what they did. And that's what many of you in this room have done. But here's the question now. How have I and how have you put the good news within reach of the sin-sick people around us? Because as much as we wish that Jesus was still here going into houses and throwing parties and preaching the gospel, the truth is that's now our objective, friends. And when's the last time we put the good news right within reach of the sin-sick people who need this good news the most? It's like, but Kelly, I don't, know, I don't know what to say. I'm not Jesus. Right, you're not, but here's the good news. As followers of Jesus, 
The Holy Spirit lives in you. And you know what? You have a story about your own salvation. It might not be dramatic. It may not be a leprous man made clean. It might not be an excommunicated tax collector who is called by Jesus individually. But friends, you have a story of what he's done in your life. Have you put that good news within reach of those around you who need to hear it today? That's what Jesus does. And he wants to do through you, but you've got to be the conduit between those who need Jesus and the answer, Jesus himself. Putting that good news right in reach of those broken by sin. And as much as I wish I could do that throughout this entire city, I'm limited too, friends. I only have my own sphere of influence, but you have yours. Have you leveraged it with the good news of Jesus? It's time. Because he had no problem being friends with tax collectors and sinners who, by the way, liked him and followed him. So again, I bring us back to the big idea. Don't forget this point that Jesus offers radical forgiveness in impossible situations to improbable people. Maybe your friends in an impossible situation, you think they are least likely to be saved. No, no, no. You pray and you ask for God to use you to minister to that person. Because this is what he still does today, radical forgiveness. So Lord, we look at your word and we see what you did when you ministered right here in our world. How you weren't so holy that you just stayed in one place and expected everybody to come to you if they were good enough. No, Jesus, you pushed the boundaries of social and physical and relational life, and you ministered with the good news right in close context to everybody who needed to hear it. How dare us as your followers, how dare we keep this news to ourselves? You've commissioned us to share the good news, and so many of us don't. So, Lord, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing. So help us to be messengers of your radical forgiveness to people that we know that are in impossible situations that may be even improbable people. But you did that, and because of that, there are trails and trails and trails, gatherings of people even today who share their story of impossible situations where they felt like they were an outsider looking in, and yet you brought them in by your grace. Do that today through us. And before we leave, maybe you're here today and you're in that place where you're in an impossible situation and you might feel like an improbable person to be saved and you came today because somebody invited you or you came today because it was time to go to church or maybe you've been here a long time but you've never really yielded to him. Friends, let me tell you, he is your savior right now. Whatever you're going through, he's the one. And if you need that kind of savior's work in your life today, here's what we do. We just pray. And we invite him to be our savior, to forgive us of our sins. And if that's you and you're here today with our eyes closed and our heads still bowed, just raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's me. I need that radical forgiveness today in my life. Thank you. Anybody else? I need that radical forgiveness in my life. Father, we pray right now that you would do exactly that. You told us in Romans, Jesus, that if we confess our sins, actually in John, if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. And you told us in Romans that if we simply believe that you are the Son of God, confessing that with our mouth and believing in our heart that you were indeed the Son of God raised from the dead, that we can be saved. 
So we ask for that today. Each person in this room who needs that radical forgiveness is available today as they ask you to forgive them, touch their life, and bring them in that new place with you today of radical living under your radical forgiveness. Thank you for that truth today that touches our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.